What's up, everybody? It's Reggie Williams, founder and CEO of Ambrosia for Heads. And with me, I have Jake Payne, our editor-in-chief. And together, this is our What's the Headline podcast. we got a really special one lined up for you today. We're going to do a deep dive into the series, Wu-Tang Clan, an American Saga. Yo, uh, you've been watching it, right? Uh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, you know, we, we've watched this show now. It's been out for some time. It's two seasons in. It's been confirmed uh, for season three, which will be the final season. And it's pretty dope. I, I, I love it. It's um, It's got that kind of mystical element of woo, but also the gritty like street um, vibes that, that they had there. And the cast is phenomenal. Um, the writing is great. And there's a lot of really mind-blowing events in there that have made me say, huh, you know, did that really happen? And the reality is, is that uh, the show is what um, the, the, the executive producer, uh, Alex C., who's uh, co-executive producing with uh, RZA, has said, uh, you know, it's historical fiction. So what does that mean? You know, RZA said that um, you can't take every moment and expound it. Uh, you condense the moments. It's like concentrated grape juice. You'll learn more. You'll be able to balance what's really, uh, what's reality and what ain't. And then, you know, C said things, there are things in that actually happen. There are versions of events spiritually. It's very truthful and accurate. So we're going to do a deep dive today and really dive into what's fact versus what's fiction for Wu-Tang Clan and American Saga. You ready to do this, man? Yeah, absolutely. And will I have everyone, you know what, can I ask anyone that's ever checked out what's the headline? Can you drop us a rating and a review if you feel so compelled on, you know, Apple Podcasts, uh, Spotify, wherever you get it, the more the merrier YouTube. We just want to make as many people aware of what's the headline as possible. And we can't do it without y'all. Word, word. And thank you all for listening. Always much appreciated. So first and foremost, let me say, if you have not watched the show and you don't know the history of Wu-Tang Clan, uh, the things that have kind of happened in the past. Uh, there are definitely going to be things here that might be considered spoilers. So, um, you know, bookmark this, press pause, go watch the series, come back. But if you don't mind, and obviously, you know, this is all readily available. It's, it's, it's real life. Um, if you don't mind, then we're going to really get into this and go, you know, and, and get into some of the things that have sparked the most curiosity for us and for, for others that we've seen. Uh, this is really inspired by the fact that we had a story on the site that we wrote in back in 2018 or so um, that's blown up over the years and is constantly one of our most um, read stories of the month. And it's Wu-Tang related. Um, and it's clear that people are going and finding out, you know, what really happened uh, in life versus what's shown in the series. So we're just going to do that and cover 10, 12 topics or so. So mm -hmm. pretty, pretty definitely. And there's a lot of Easter eggs in the show that we are not even going to talk about that. I think a lot of Wu-Tang fan, you know, Wu-Tang Clan fans will get a lot of heads for me. Every episode, I'm just blown away. There's references to lyrics. There's references to interviews that were done years ago. It's one of the reasons that I have become a fan of the show. And I'm so happy to have this special episode. And even even real quick before we begin, I mean, just, you know, in, in a couple of sentences, talk to me, Reggie, of just kind of your your Wu-Tang, you know, story, you know, what, what made you ahead? Yeah, man. Um, I remember, obviously, real time when, when it came out, like, I think the first time 
I got exposed was Rap City used to do uh, a top 10 on Friday nights back in the 90s. And that was like must-see viewing for me. It came on late, mad late, it was like midnight or so. And I remember seeing the videos for for Cream and Can It Be So Simple and um, I think Protect Your Neck mm-hmm. uh, was obviously first. I don't remember seeing that one, but I, I remember hearing it. And, you know, my college roommates and I, you know, we went on a trip and, you know, we were calling each other son and like, you know, uh, just like adapting all that that Wu lingo that they brought in, you know, it just completely changed the sound of hip hop. Um, at the time, you know, Death Row was popping, Bad Boy was popping, and hip hop was in a very melodic place. But Wu brought that grit and grime and that rugged, um, you know, um, a melodic sound. And it was, it just really changed the face of hip hop, just brought a whole different energy. It's energy that I had seen before, you know, Public Enemy, I think, had the same kind of aggressive image, even like Run DMC and LL Cool J, but it was expressed in a very different way. But but what about you? Yeah, I mean, Wu-Tang Forever is the first album I remember buying on the day it released, double album. And I just remember the rollout. At that point, you know, I was um, 13 years old and I had a chance between the first album and that to catch up, just like you, through MTV, BET, seeing the videos, being a fan of the slang. At that point, I had owned, um, you know, Raekwon, only built for Cuban links, the purple tape, but I owned it on CD, Method Man to Cow, a lot of that stuff. And over the years, you know, I've gotten to work with some of the guys I've, I've interviewed or connected with um, on some level, every living member of Wu-Tang Clan. I never knew ODB, um, but, you know, a truly, truly incredible group that is a big part of why I've spent 20 years, you know, in hip hop media and content. And, you know, I'm just such a fan of the series. I think it it really delivers in so many ways. And that's why I think this is the right conversation to have. Yeah, that's dope, man. You know, I've met RZA a few times. Um, in fact, I bought this special edition um, uh, G-Shock Wu-Tang watch. Uh, that's, that's Actually, I still have this dope. And I was wearing it and happened to, to meet him. And uh, that was a cool moment, you know, uh, I talked about with him. Um, met Meth a, a, a couple times, interviewed him, had a really great interview. It's the one where he told us that he hasn't cursed on a record since like 2013 or something insane like mm-hmm. that. Uh, I've met Ray a couple times. Um, I've not met Ghost. Uh, Master Killer. It's, yeah, man. Met, met quite a few of them. Really, really. Yeah, amazing. they're great guys. For years, um, when I came into the game, I was a features editor at allhiphop.com between 2002 and 2007. And our meetings were on 34th Street, um, between I think 9th and 10th Avenue. It's a totally different area today than it was back then. And across in the same like office plaza, you know, right off the street was Wu-Tang Studios. That's actually the building where ODB unfortunately passed away. And a lot of times on Monday nights, you know, I'd come out of my meetings and there would be, you know, meth, there would be RZA, there would be the guys. And it just reminded me like, this is so much like, like hip hop, you can reach out and touch. And I have the deepest, you know, gratitude and admiration for all the members of the clan. They've always been good to me. And I haven't had a chance to tell them how much I feel the series yet though. And I, I'm quite, I'm quite sure a few of them will get a chance to, to peep this episode. Word, word. That's dope, man. And you've seen them perform, right? Oh yeah. Yeah. I, uh, 
I have. And, and yeah, it just, just great. And I've, I've caught a lot of the individual tours. One of my very first like hip hop concerts was um, red and meth with Ghostface Killer, And I believe the outside has opened like in 99 and uh, man, I'm just, you know, I'm, I'm very clearly a fan just like you. Yeah. Seen him many times, man. Energy never, never, uh, never wanes. So, you know, as fans, I think the, the fitting place to start is one of the things that really blew me away about the series. And I'd heard it alluded to, but it's a plot line that is a big part of season one and season two. So I'm going to ask you, did Ghostface Killer and Raekwon originally dislike each other? Yo, so this was definitely a plot point that I had not known before watching the show. And uh, it really blew me away to see just how much vitriol there was between the two of them. And so it, I agree, it's one of the ones I was very curious about. And the answer is yes. So in November of 2012, RZA told the LA Times, when steel rubs against steel, it makes both blades sharper. Raekwon and Ghostface started off as enemies in the, in the neighborhood. He said they grew to be best friends after joining the Wu-Tang Clan. And he provided more, Raekwon himself actually provided more details in speaking with Hot New Hip Hop back in 2013. He confirmed that RZA was a peacemaker and said that um, as shown in, the, in Wu-Tang and American Saga. And then he, he also said uh, of RZA, when you're dealing with a cat like RZA, who got family all over in relationships. Rizzo was over here, over there. So he pretty much knew everybody. But at the same time, the people that he knew probably wasn't fond of us. Same time, neither because they didn't grow up with us. It's the same typical, you know, shit. If you go to the hood and you go 10 blocks away, dudes don't know you. They don't F with you. Uh, and they'll gun you down, he said. And if they feel you in the way, so we always stayed on our side. And so, you know, in discussing his feelings about Ghostface at the time, Ray said, so when RZA formed this alliance, the names that was brought to the table, it was definitely spoken on like, yo, I don't really F with Ghost. He's a crook, you know? So um, you see that sentiment played out many times uh, by Shamik Moore, who does an incredible job on the show. And he says, you know, we tell it how it is, you know what I mean? But that doesn't mean he wasn't talented. He wasn't a man of respect. But when Rizzo was the middle guy, it was almost like he did a Gotti move. He brought all the families to the table and made us make amends due to the fact of how we were going to move forward and get this money. So, you know, it's very accurate that um, Ray and Ghost just didn't, you know, from different parts of town. Um, you know, there's definitely rivalries going on. And they just weren't down like that. But RZA and the show uh, definitely is very much kind of uh, the abbot and brokering peace between them. Takes quite a bit of time, but but is able to do so, obviously. And it's amazing to see the partnership that is formed between Ray and Ghost. Um, I think it brings some depth to that, that, that uh, versus that we saw, because typically because of the purple tape and the connection they've had on record, it seems like their chemistry is amazing. So it's just so strange to conceive of them as enemies. But what what was your take when you first started seeing this depiction? Yeah, I mean, the series opens with that. And we'll talk about that in a second. But, you know, I, I knew that the clan was a bunch of kind of misfits that had loose connections. And, and what I, I love about the series is you kind of get who who knows who, you know, the the you got and Method Man connection, the you know, Riza and Ray having this relationship and then Riza and Dennis or Ghostface Killer having this other one. 
But to just imagine in, in probably a five-year span, these two guys going from strongly disliking each other, being street rivals to, you know, in, in Ghost's own words, Purple Tape Ray's co-host. Like, they literally co-hosted each other's albums as crazy. And I love your point about Versus, too, because you and I even have spoken on this podcast about the significance of, of Gucci Man and, and Jeezy, you know, and, and having real street beef bleed into a versus, but you are absolutely right. You know, uh, Ghost and Ray is not like Red and Meth. These are guys that have history and come from rival sections, rival project buildings within Staten Island. So there's a lot of subtext there and the show really opens that up. Word. So, you know, now that we've established that they really have beef, how intense would that be? Like we saw uh, a scene where, um, you know, Raekwon and Power shot up Ghostface Killer's apartment. And I believe his family was in the apartment at the time. So, um, you know, as, as shown on the show. So is did that really happen? Not exactly the way it's portrayed, but it is not entirely fiction. So, you know, since um, the series came out, it's been clarified. Actually, two months ago, Raekwon spoke to Vlad TV. And he kind of alludes to the situation. I mean, he, he, he talks of a situation that I feel that scene represents. And basically he says, Ghostface Killer got into a situation with my man, and his man's name is Jamie, over Divine. Divine being Riz's brother, and they show him early in the series. You know, he's kind of moving and shaking in the streets. Divine and my man had a problem. Ghostface Killer was more or less trying to help out his man and help out Divine in a way, his man being Divine. So Vlad, as Vlad sometimes does as a journalist, jumps in and says, you know, they were shooting. Vlad said that Ghost started shooting at Jamie, Jamie's mother's house. And Raekwon, during the interview, nods along. And then in retaliation, Jamie shoots up Ghost's mother's house, which is what you see in season one of, you know, American Saga. So Raekwon says, yeah, it was an eye for an eye situation. He was like, yo, you shot at my crib. So that's what it was. That's how it played out. I wasn't around that day to see what was going on. Like I said, we know that Ghost knew RZA and Divine, but we really didn't know that he knew him the way that he knew him. Him and RZA would hang out on the hill, Park Hill. He'd be in Stapleton. Um, he'd be in, oh, meaning RZA would be in Park Hill. He'd be in Stapleton. He'd be in New Brighton all over, which kind of you know reiterates the point you made. Um, so you don't know everybody that RZA knows, but these dudes love RZA the same way I love RZA, the way we love RZA. RZA had had to come in and dead the ish because he loved both sides. Um, and one other thing I want to add about that scene, and again, this is what I consider to be an Easter egg of the show, you know, they really portray Ghostface Killer as a loving brother and a loving son. And as anyone that has listened to, you know, All That I Got Is You, Ghostface really did have brothers that had mus muscular dystrophy and stuff like that. And they really show that. And when that when his crib is shot up in the show, you show they they present how inflammatory that is. But it's interesting. So a slight adaptation, but baited, you know, based on on real stuff. Yeah, I mean that makes it even crazier, right? Like it's one thing for you to have like just a general rivalry and beef because of like you know affiliation and stuff like that. It's another thing if there's gunplay involved. So yeah. uh, I, I think that's particularly amazing. The vision that RZA must have had and how compelling it had to be for them to, you know, come together and squash it, you know? Um, and I wonder how long it took for them to like really become the, the brothers they seem to be now. That's something that I really hope that we get at in season three. And, you know, obviously we're starting to see the arc of, of those characters. 
Um, but they're, you know, as as the we we kind of step towards the purple tape and Iron Man, I have a feeling that'll be a major plot point. But along those lines of tension, you know, there's a question I have for you. And was there really a fight during the filming of the Protect Your Neck video? Yeah, so in the TV show, um, the, the the filming of that video looked absolutely crazy. You know, um, there was fighting all around. Um, it looked like, uh, you know, complete chaos. Riz had shot part of it on VHS and, you know, there was a professional shoot. It just seemed like crazy. And in fact, um, I think it was Steve Rifkin's character uh, when Rizzo first showed it to him was like, yo, this is dope, but when are you going to finish it? And he was like, yo, it is finished, you know, but that was just the rugged rawness of Wu. And so it was a perfect way for them to debut visually. Um, The answer to the question is no, uh, but the night was actually truly nuts. And so I did some digging and I found a firsthand account from a guy named Osmo Walden, uh, who, uh, and, and it was translated from, from Finnish, no less, uh, but he was a, an NYU's uh, film school graduate who had stayed on in New York for a year to do an internship um, and was, was a camera assistant. And he ended up uh, getting called in to be a camera assistant for this Wu-Tang video. And he says of the encounter with Wu, I got a call that there was a need for a camera assistant. It was some music video shoot. Filming was to be done somewhere in Lower East Side. Later, it turned out to be an abandoned amphitheater in East River Park. And the group was yet to release their first single and still unknown Wu-Tang Clan. It turned out that the guys made, had filmed to VHS prior to the shoot and wanted film now. For the shoot, a 16 millimeter camera had been rented. The whole set was done with a minimal budget And during the filming that night, there was a restless crowd at the deteriorated amphitheater. All the band members were present and plenty of others as well, at least 20 people. The filming crew had a director, cinematographer, and himself. And he said the cinematographer and he were the only white people there. And it was a really aggressive atmosphere. He said frequently someone would have a gun and there was a lot of impatience in the air. It was a heated at times and he had to load the film when he had to load the film. He said when he started filming from somewhere, a brick flew through toward the camera. Uh, Do you remember seeing that in the uh, show? Yeah. Uh, Yeah. So uh, that was true. A a brick flew towards the camera and the cinematographer said, I got to go make a call. Now, it turns out he dipped, he said, (laughs) because, you know, he he never returned and the game was starting to go into overdrive. Then they were like, can you film? Meaning him. He said, well, fortunately, I can film. I've, I've been to film school. And they said, well, fuck film then. And he said, (laughs) when you have 20 armed guys near you, you really can't say no. On the other hand, you know, I wanted to help as I knew they had put their own money into the video. So it confirms that. And they had some kind of storyboard with them. So, you know, he kind of caught the vision. And even though it was chaos, he, he was still down to support. He said, I was filming and setting up the lights, pulling cables. There were drug syringes in the ground. Dudes got more and more effed up and the whole situation was heated. Suddenly, in the middle of everything, the lights turned off because the generator there broke down. I was just thinking that I had one film reel, filmed the shoot for one song. So it was that was it. Like he was it was it was now or nothing. Never. And he said it was difficult to see. The finer was in a vapor and depth of field was impossible to distinguish. I was trying to move and crop the camera based on the guys moving and trying to find targets in the darkness. I was thinking that this is the last take. This is the last take. And that the energy was high. 
miraculously that last take ended up being the video pretty much in its entirety so dude is literally like filming in the dark you know he said filming ended and the song was over the crew was breathing heavily heavily behind the cinematographer who had gotten handed the project responsibilities there was electricity and adrenaline in the air i said that's it that was it then they relaxed he said he went out and he saw the director on the sidewalk. Uh, and he said the director had actually gone, uh, you know, to call for help because he thought he was going to get shot. In the end, the Wu-Tang guys said that they owe me a favor for this, that at some point, if I need help, I can contact them. Well, I haven't contacted them. So <laughs> <laughs> seeing that, seeing, hearing that, man, um, and seeing that the video, the way it is, is to give him more, more appreciation for just how true to life that was. Yeah, 1000%. I mean, even down to just the video that I grew up watching. And like you said, that was one that was never in rotation like cream. You know, uh, I like living in the YouTube era where you can just kind of pull it up. But that energy that you see in the video was true to form based on this. And I've heard, I read some other accounts of this, that that is 100%, you know, the, the director's point is true, you know, of, of how that went down. Um, so- and interesting. Oh, go ahead. No, go ahead. It, you know, I mentioned Easter eggs and connections. Interesting thing, that band show um, at the amphitheater, which which sadly um, just was demolished in December of 2021, is where a lot of Wild Style was, fin- you know, filmed, where they were setting up the, the concert, as well as EPMD's, um, uh, what is it, uh, Headbanger video. Mm. Word, word. So, you know, they were surrounded by violence and the show does a really great job of, of um, doing that without ha- having it be omnipresent without overshadowing things. Uh, but, you know, one of the things which was really um, alarming to me was uh, there's a scene where Method Man and Inspector Deck witness a man being wrongfully killed by the police. So is that true? It is. It is. Um, it's unclear. It's unclear if Meth and INS were, were there that day, but Meth has spoken of it. And just to give some backstory, um, the series portrays a real life incident um, and it took place on April 29th, 1994. So that's after the album is out. And again, you know, timelines can be adjusted, but I think what they were trying to do is just capture the fact that there was racism all about Staten Island. And we see that other places on the series. But on that day, 23-year-old, 22-year-old, you see different, different things, different places. Um, Ernest Sayon died after suffering a head injury during a struggle with police officer Donald Brown. It took place in Park Hill. It was covered in the New York Times. It was covered in the Associated Press. Um, and allegedly, it was over a firework. So I'm going to share with you, in 2015, before this series ever took place, Method Man spoke about it with the Huffington Post. And I think he was just speaking of in the wake of, you know, um, Michael Brown and, and different things that were happening, obviously, in society. But Methra called and he said, I felt the pain because we had spoke up about a cop that had done that to one of my dear friends I grew up with, Ernest Sayon. He was killed by a cop. I'm going to say killed because he was killed by this cop, Donald Brown, who strangled him, choked him to death the same way that Eric Garner's death was by asphyxiation. It was over a firework that no one even threw. And, you know, I've read accounts of that evening. And similar to what's portrayed on the show, it took place on basketball courts in Park Hill. And, you know, a, a disturbance was reported that the NYPD shows up. Um, and 
there were 18 people involved, perhaps meth and INS were, were some of them that were there. Um, like I said, again, this is after the album, but um, somebody that had a warrant ends up in an altercation with police. And while this man was cuffed, um, Ernest Sayon, he was allegedly beaten by a number of officers and eventually strangled. And to make matters worse, in December of 94, Officer Donald Brown was, was, was cleared of all charges. Um, and if you read, even do a, a search on his name, you'll see that the NYPD has positioned him as a hero. Um, but that type of anger and frustration and disappointment, and I think a referendum on the value of life is 100% real. Um, and the character on the show that, that is uh, killed by the officer, his name is Hayes. It's crazy, man. Uh, it's the kind of thing that if it were happening today would have likely been filmed and uh, would have caused, uh, you know, an uprising. Um, but, you know, even with that, we've seen that it doesn't matter a lot of times whether it's filmed or not. Um, often justice is not delivered. So, yeah, that's 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 really crazy. Um, very powerful for them to put something like that in the show. Yeah, I mean, the show deals with a lot of heavy things. And, you know, as as it progresses, there's another instance of murder that is that is spoken about and attempted, though. And I want to ask you, did Rizzo really face charges of attempted murder? Yeah. So, you know, this is the story that has really sparked a lot of interest on the site. Um, uh, The answer is yes. Um, You know, 1991. He allegedly shot, well, he shot Willie Waters in the leg after um, Waters allegedly kicked his car. And, um, you know, he was charged with felonious assault because of that. So in 2018, I attended um, an interview with RZA by uh, NPR's Rodney Carmichael. And RZA talked about this. um, It was in Atlanta at the A3C Festival. And, uh, you know, I think rather than hearing me talk about it, it'd be great to ha- hear Rizza in his own words. So, mm-hmm. you know, check this out. We, you know, we started, of course, you know, going through with a lot of young black men. was going through, from, I say from 14, 15, 16, and 17. Those years, even though I had knowledge of self, I still was living as a member of my environment, of my community, therefore participating in everything that we did, drank, smoked, um, you know, teenage sex, um, and drunk. That's what was happening. That's what we did. Um, I met a manager named Bell Kwan, who respected my music and, and offered me an opportunity to know, to go and become a, a recording artist. And I recall, I stopped doing the drugs. Uh, you know, we had gold cables and all that. And slowly my gold cable disappeared. And slowly I pulled my rings and kept myself going, you know, hoping that I want to become a, a rap star. Uh, at 18, he gets me signed to Tommy Boy Records. At 19, they put out a single called Open Up Your Arcane. Which didn't reflect my my full creative talents. It was something that you know they contrived me to be, uh, and didn't work. Um, the Jizza, who's my teacher, my lightener, he also does a disco style culture Warner Brothers, and he puts it out loud, which is full of hip hop. But then they record the very last song, a single called "Come Do Me," and that becomes this video. It didn't work. 
So now the idea of success in music is dismal. And it caused us to retreat back to the streets. And the streets are not working. Every time we, you know, every time they get a package, right? You can make $10,000, but guess what? Somebody got arrested. Uh, somebody got shot, you know? And I kept seeing a cycle of non-success. And even though, you know, I, you know, when you were young, you were having fun, you know, got some shorties, you know, you, you know, you got your biscuits, you know what I mean? You're living that life. But every week, it was some type of problem. You know what I mean? Yo, so-and-so got shot. Yo, they stabbed. Wow, I saw they shot coach. Yo, it was like, it was never, right? And then all of a sudden, myself is in violence. And now I'm facing eight years in prison. And all this knowledge that I accumulated is worth toilet paper right now because what? I'm not utilizing it. And what happened for me is my mother looked at me with the eyes of disappointment. There's no other pain I think than that for, for a young man. But my family uh, rallied together. My sister actually took her life savings, you know, and bailed me out. And we stood together as a family. And I started taking that same reading fanatic to the law library. Okay. I found some cases that matched up to what it should be for me. Because I wasn't, it was a self-defense, you know. It's four on one, you know what I mean? But um, I still get you that, young man, and I regret that. You know what I mean? I, I don't, you know, I should be able to preach out of my age. But let me get to the point, which is we went to trial and I won. The jury said, not guilty. And when I walked out, my mother looked me in my eye and she said, This is your second chance. Don't blow it. And I should never forget this joy that overcame me. And at the same time, I had, uh, had a baby in the oven. So I'm like, yo, Joaquin is greater than this. I can be greater than that. I'm going to bring Joaquin to the side. I want to born something new. And I born the RZA. And when the RZA was born, I decided to walk the path of righteousness. And not yo. That was it, man. So um, it's crazy that that was the moment, you know, that something so tragic and which could have completely derailed his life is actually the thing that birthed the man who would become one of the most important cultural figures in hip hop. Um, I think they do a great job of showing it in the show, but, mm -hmm. and I, but I still get chills just hearing him, you know, say those words himself. But, you know, how, how do you react to that? It's one of the greatest hip hop what ifs. And, you know, it's interesting too, like they do a phenomenal job on the show and they talk about a man has two lives, you know, his first life. And then when he realizes he only has one life, um, they talk about that, which I think they attribute to Confucius. And the whole dynamic between RZA on the show and his mother is great. It's one of the things that I, I really think is, is one of the best pieces of acting. It's interesting. They didn't, you know, portray uh, RZA's sister with the bail. And at that point on the show, I don't think they make note that RZA is expecting a child, which would only add to the drama. And 
you know, there's a scene in the series where the the lawyer is real hesitant to take the case because in the series there's there's two shootings, and he goes into Riz's basement and sees a Kenny Loggins album, which compels him to take the case. And I actually did some research as we were preparing for this. And it's funny, like there's a whole community out there of like Kenny Loggins fans that are trying to see if that's real, which now we know it's RZA defending himself, which again is like even crazier, but that is wild. And, and it took place in Steubenville, which um, I grew up in Pittsburgh. So Pennsylvania, which is like 30 minutes from Steubenville, a little bit longer, maybe. And RZA has ties to Pittsburgh. His stepfather ran the oldest um, kind of like corner store in the Hill District. Um, and I love the way that they portray that as just contrast to New York. So really, really, really amazing stuff. And as you said, that's that story that you and I, I mean, you were there, we covered in 2018, kind of was the genesis of this podcast episode, which is great. And it also leads me to see why RZA named his album Birth of a Prince. Where, where, and so RZA was at a crossroads with the criminal justice system. We also know that you got was arrested on the show and it's done in a really dramatic fashion. You know, they had gone um, to a corporate function for BMG and done a showcase for loud records to try and get signed. And it went incredibly well. You know, the executives were blown away by their energy. But um, as the guys are celebrating in the room, we see you guy going downstairs and looking at his trunk and he's got, he's riding dirty. He's got some, some, some product in his trunk. And right then and there, he gets arrested that night. So, um, you know, was it true that he got arrested the night they performed for loud records and, and basically got their big break? Not that night, but it does reflect um, an ongoing struggle with the law that you got had. Um, so um, you guy was arrested during the recording of, you know, end of the Wu-Tang 36 chambers, but the show portrayed it as being the same night they performed at the party back in 2013. Um, you guy spoke to my man, Paul Mira at hip hop DX. And this is what he said. I did my mystery of checks box chess box and verse in 15 minutes because to tell you the truth i had to i had to go walk into jail i knew that i was going to jail before i went to jail rizzo recorded me and said i want you to do that verse and i want you to say it the right way so i did it about 10 takes he had me yelling my mother effing lungs out i didn't know nothing about recording he had me coming on all hard and ish i got incarcerated i came out and i heard it and i was like wow okay he really doing this that and the other, et cetera. When I came out, it became a cult classic. I was like, wow, for real? I was kind of shocked. People like this ish? It just took it for what it was, man. It was cool. Those two verses saved my life. RZA saved my life, and I could never go against that. So what's interesting is the crime that you guy turned himself in had to do with a rival in the street, um, you know, that he had had some sort of an altercation with that led to him. Um, I was just reading about it in preparation for this. He he bounced around a few incarceration systems, but I think he was in bare state. But yeah, he got those two verses off. And one of the things that, that we've spoken about in AFH history is to make the Wu-Tang Clan, you had to be on that first album. Because if you listen to that album, I mean, they're shouting out a bunch of people that we later got, you know, through other incarnations like Sons of Man, um, you know, 62nd Assassin, Kill a Priest. Shaheen the Rugged Child, but if you recorded on that first album, you became Clan, and you got a Master Killer, although they had the, the fewest number of verses, that truly changed their life, and that's just such a powerful quote. 
Absolutely. Uh, still, still strong. Um, 25, almost 30 years later. So really crazy. Most definitely. So of that same era, you know, we talk about Wu doing outrageous things to, you know, get on and, and make their presence felt. Did the, did the clan really crash the stretch and Barbito show to get those guys to play protect your neck? Well, but before I answer this one, um, you know, I think it's important to kind of reflect on who Stretch Armstrong and Bobito Garcia are. Uh, you know, they were the hosts of a, a an underground hip hop show on WKCR, which was the radio station for Columbia University. It's, it's, it's fascinating to me that um, a lot of hip hop radio, you know, this is before the Hot 97s, the Power 105s and things like that in the 90s you really only found um, hip hop ironically on college stations. You know, typically the stations played classical music and jazz during the day. And then um, at nighttime, it'd be taken over uh, by students who were uh, into kind of like the underground mu- musical movements at the time. So, um, you know, house music and, um, you know, grunge and, and hip hop and things like that. And it wasn't just at, at Columbia, you know, at WHRB at Harvard, there was some really cool stuff going on too, led by Dave Mays, uh, you know, and, and I believe John Schechter was on there too, you know, the guys who started Source Magazine. So there was a real movement afoot amongst these uh, channels to, um, you know, showcase music that otherwise wasn't heard. And so in the early to mid 90s, Bobito and Stretch, uh, had some of the the biggest names that some of the people who would become the biggest names in hip hop on uh, first. Uh, so, you know, uh, Nas was on there. Biggie was on there. They had uh, Big L on there and he did a, a famous freestyle, which is readily uh, available on YouTube with this unknown dude named Jay-Z, um, you know, and so to get on that show was kind of your rite of passage, you know, that and, you know, going back to the source, like um, the unsigned hype, was kind of the area where, you know, if you were featured in these places, record companies could discover you and it really could be your big break. And so uh, the answer is yes. Uh, We knew Wu was rolling grimy from the show at that point. You know, we just talked about the Protection Neck video and it was, you know, uh, by by any means necessary kind of approach they took with breaking that record uh, in terms of the video, the way they sold it and, and the whole nine. And so radio was next up. And so um, in a 2012 interview of Stretch and Bob by the Red Bull Music Academy, Bob Beto said of the night, Wu-Tang, the first time they came up, Stretch wasn't there. I know it was RZA because I recognized him. He'd come up when he was Prince Rakim. It was him. I remember Ghostface and three other dudes. And Ghostface was the one that was acting like crazy, like, yo, money, play our joint, play our joint. Signaling, signaling, signaling that the moment was quite intimidating. Uh, so the record did get an immediate reaction from listeners, though. Uh, Bobito said his, his man, Zoo York founder Eli Morgan, called up inquiring about the record. Uh, and, you know, he was obviously a very influential tastemaker at the time. And, you know, that look, uh, along with, you know, a few others, is, is um, I believe, something that caught Steve Rifkin's attention as well and was the beginning of their journey. So, yeah, that, that moment happened. All those cylinders firing at once. Yeah. Eli Morgan said, yo, play it again and again. Yep, absolutely. <laughs> so this is an, uh, another one that was just, that RZA discussed um, at that A3C interview, and you created an amazing story. Um, and it's actually how season two ended. 
we see a scene where Riza is in his room. He's with his um, his um, his, um, his his baby's mom at the time. I can't remember if he'd had the baby at that point or not. Or she, no, I think she was pregnant um, in the scene. But uh, he goes downstairs. Uh, she says, "Yo, what is that?" They they hear hear some water, and he goes downstairs and he sees his his basement completely flooded. And all the discs where he's put his beats, you know, back then they had the, the, the square floppy discs are floating around in water. And you see him like desperately trying to go and pick them up and, and dry them off and things like that. So did a flood really destroy um, the music in his basement? 100%. And this has always been one of the things that fascinated me. And at different points in my career, I've, I've asked Riza and I've asked Inspector Deck about it. And I've asked other members of Wu, but I'd never heard Riza speak about it as completely as he did back in 2018. And, you know, he explains that his life has been defined by water because this wasn't the first flood that Riza endured. Um, you know, while the show presents him, you know, moving about the city as, you know, Raekwon and, and Ghost had alluded to, you know, he spent part of his, his youth living in Brownsville, Brooklyn, same neighborhood as, you know, Mike Tyson, MOP and Master Ace. And back then, you know, he was a kid and, and I guess the basement was always his spot, but he described a, a sewage backup that had happened and, and Riza said literally there was, you know, waste floating about the family's basement. So in 2018, he used that thought and transition. And this is Riza speaking. He said, for me, that same effing flood keeps popping up in my life. It popped up twice in the course of Wu-Tang. As soon as we had finished, entered the 36 chambers, entered the Wu-Tang 36 chambers, I already had Inspector Deck's album, Method Man's album prepared. Obviously, as a timeout, that would have been debuts from each. Back to RZA. Because back in those days, we had floppy disks, and I would make all the beats. Method Man session, Deck session, Raekwon session, and I was ready to go. Here comes the flood that wiped away about 160 floppy disks because I didn't think there would be a flood. I had the disks on the floor under the keyboard. You don't think Wu-Tang was, you, you just don't think. Wu-Tang was out doing some shows in Cleveland or whatever. We came back and the water and, and Rizza points, you know, was really high, like waist high, washed it all away. We went back to the drawing board. Cool. So you see that, but as a little bit of a, a spoiler and perhaps we'll see this in season three, um, Riza alludes to another flood that exists. So more than a year later, Riza says that he's taking better carriage, you know, better care of storage with these discs. After the creation of Raekwon's debut and Jizz's Liquid Swords album, nature struck again. This is Riza talking. Now my studio is built. Everything is stored up high off the floor. I feel like life is good. I just created, you know, and all these, all the acclaim, you know, Riza's riding high. And then another flood comes higher. It destroys the tape machine, the board we had, all the other equipment. Okay, cool. We move off and get the Wu house in Jersey. There'll be no floods again. Another flood. So even when they moved uh, recordings outside of New York City to Jersey, it happens again. So Riza joked in 2018 and he said, the funny thing is recently I was home. I'm not worried about the flood. A tsunami could come and it would not affect me. Um, and he even mentioned that in his current recording room, and Riza had said something like this to me, there's a skylight, you know, um, and he was joking as he was having this thought and water dripped down from the skylight. So, you know, isn't, as, as a quick timeout though, Reggie, like, isn't Riza a phenomenal storyteller, like through these interviews? 
He really is, man. He really is. And it's a real sliding doors moment. It makes you think, what do these first albums sound like? You know, like, what was he able to re- recall and recreate them perfectly? Or was it really going to be completely different debuts? You know, I think, you know, we get the sense that Method Man's album in particular suffered from this, you know, and um, now I wasn't, I didn't love the first album. Um, I was, Meth was, was always kind of my favorite in Wu. And I loved uh, what he did on the album. I loved what he did on the what with Biggie. Uh, you know, I just thought he was incredible and still is. Um, but the beats on that album, the first one, um, I, I didn't love, you know, and I wonder if that's what impacted it, you know, and you think about other things like that too, um, other natural disasters that may have altered the course of hip hop. So Q-tip, it was Q-Tip, right, who had the yeah. fire which destroyed like 10,000 records or something like that. And, you know, I know there've been others, but. Eminem had a laptop stolen, I think, with a bunch of recordings on it, if I'm not mistaken. You know, that's happened, things like that. It's just, it's crazy. And, you know, you mentioned, you mentioned Method Man, and I've always been curious about that too, because I I agree with everything you said about Takal. And, you know, I I still obviously respect a lot of elements of that album and, and had it since childhood. But to me, the biggest victim in all of this, you know, apart from RZA, and and here we are living in a time now where some of that unreleased stuff, you know, there's all this utility in that. We see that with all these deluxe editions and stuff, and that's why we don't get it a lot with the clan. But I think Inspector Deck really, really suffered because um, it wasn't until 1999 that he puts out his debut, Uncontrolled Substance. And you and I, one of the first days we ever worked together, like in the physical on, on Ambrosia for Heads, we did a story about this, like the what if, because I often argue that the greatest MC based on Enter the Wu-Tang, just the verses, you know, and I'm not even including RZA's production, but just who's into the microphone is Deck. And that has never been reflected in Deck's solo catalog. And he waits, you know, six years since that. And RZA did two joints on that album. I mean, he had you know, Pete Rock and True Master and other people worked on it and Deck became his own producer. But could you imagine a peak form mid 90s Deck putting out an album like that would be insane? Yeah, it would have been crazy. So, you know, he confirmed uh, the flood. He confirmed that he used discs for his beats. And we see this. This is a uh, recurring theme in the show. You know, he'll, he'll make a disc. He'll put someone's name on it and put it aside. But he also seemed to color code discs. And that has significance, too. So, you know, is that true? Did he really color code his discs? Absolutely. One of the things that I'm trying to, that I'm still curious the next time I speak to the guys is if it was color coded by MC. So in 2021, Ghostface Killer's solo debut Iron Man turned 25. And, you know, Sony put out a deluxe, you know, re-release and they remastered the videos and all of that. And they made this really cool video. And in it, this is what GFK says. He said, RZA had crazy boxes. The yellow box was the best box. He just had Maddish in there. You got to choose from whatever he got in that box. Like, yo, give me that. Put that to the side. Put that to the side. Yo, put that to the side. You make a tape of that. You bring Ish home and you just start throwing your dart, meaning you start recording and writing to the beats. And again, you do see some of that in the show. In the video, Ghost elaborated, that sound came together on that album based on the soul that I got inside from me. From growing up as a baby, listening to your mother and then playing stuff like the Shy Lights, the Stylistics, it just carried with me. That soul just came. So when it was time for me to do my album, I had like a slight vision of how I wanted to go with it. And I just picked out whatever I thought that was fat at the time. 
but you got to have that type of style to know how to swim through the beats and the loops. And if I'm not mistaken in the show, they deliberately show go uh, Rizza in his basement. You know, he comes back from, you know, the stuff that had happened with the attempted murder charge and he starts doling out beats and they show him earlier in the show, buying a, a, you know, certain colored cassettes and discs and he does, and they specifically show him labeling out everything. And what's interesting too is, you know, I mean, here we are watching the formation of Enter the Wu-Tang. And at one point, um, I believe it's early in season two, they show RZA making the All That I Got Is You beat, you know, off of a Jackson 5 sample. And they're both, RZA says, you know, I got to add the drums. And Ghost is bobbing to it. And he's like, it doesn't need any drums. And to me, when Ghost was talking about that soul, that 70s soul, you know, that 100% fits the bill. And that that sort of style isn't something that you found on other Wu members' albums like that. Where, yeah, he definitely had a, a monopoly on that and built on it over the years. Like, he's so synonymous with those um, those soul samples, you know. And it's given him versatility, too. You know, Meth has been able to do ballads. Um, but but I think Ghost has really excelled at them because of that, that soul connection. And that's one thing, too, I'll say about the series is, you know, in terms of production, because RZA is one of the GOAT producers. No, I don't, you know, you'd be hard pressed to contest that. But, you know, for years, he's given more attention to the solo career of Ghost than any other artist. And the series really shows why RZA and Ghost just have a hugely deep bond. And we're going to talk more about that in a second. But as you said, you know, as Wu, as RZA and Ghost bum-rushed Stretch and Bob um, at radio, in the series, it depicts them bum-rushing the show at Jack the Rapper, which, you know, very, very important kind of convention and showcase for Hungry and, and, and developing, you know, hip-hop acts in the 90s. Um, did that really happen? Yeah, man. Um, they were going to get on by hook or by crook and we saw this over and over again you know you talked about uh we talked about stretch and bob there was a showcase they did um at the fever um for a bunch of record labels uh and they hustled their way into that um you know they whenever they had their single they would go to record stores and like each dude would come in and like ask for it and like hustle the record owner, the record store owner into like getting multiple copies of it because the demand was so high. They, you know, called into radio stations. They did everything they could. So, you know, you said Jack the Rapper was um, an, an important vehicle for up and coming and also established rappers to showcase their wares. So, um, you know, on the show, we see uh, they're down there. They had had a showcase lined up and Steve Rifkin, again, owner of Loud Records, comes and says uh, to RZA that they were cut from the showcase. And it's a really dramatic moment. And they decide, you know what, you know, F that we're going to we're going to go on anyway. And they just basically just like rolled deep like woo and took over the stage. So the answer is no, not really. Um, but the real story might actually even be better. So in reality, Wu did have an official slot on the stage. But it was other forces that were threatening to keep them at bay. Uh, so you got told uh, title back in March of 2018. Jack the Rapper was this huge rap festival during the early 90s. Every year, rappers from all over would flock to Atlanta to network with both established and aspiring artists and label executives. One of the times we were down there, 
maybe our first time, Luke from Two Live Crew would not give up the mic. He would not let us on. Two Live Crew was mad deep down there and supposedly had been getting rowdy during the whole convention. Maybe Luke was trying to protect his market because we were down, we were down uh, south. Whatever his reason, we were up next and he was keeping us from going on stage. We tried to be patient for a few moments, but you know how that goes when you're hungry for recognition. So after a few moments, the clan had to rush the stage to ensure we did what we came to do. In the fracas that ensued, Luke's DJ got knocked out. We didn't care, though. We had to go up there because that's what we were there for. Unfortunately, after rushing the stage and finally getting it rocking, we only had time to do two songs. Just as well, rushing the stage did as much for us performing as it would have in terms of recognition. So again, man, um, you know, Wu has always been about more than the music. You know, it's the image, it's the um, it's the, the lifestyle, it's the energy that they bring. And this only added to the cult of, of uh, and the legend of, of Wu. Yeah, man, bring the MF and fracas. I yeah. like it, you know, <laughs> and that's wild too, because, you know, I uh, like... KRS-One and that whole incident with PM Don, and there's a great story on our site that really breaks down a first-person account of that, uh, I believe from Kid Capri. But if you had that type of energy to make your point felt, it it spoke really, really loud. Like, that's isn't that so much better than social media today? Um, and it reminds me, too, I mean, you know, in the last dozen or so years, like when Odd Future was on Fallon and they're running behind the desk and all of that, like, that energy always is going to win. yeah. So they bring that energy to the radio station. They bring it to multiple stages. You know, they don't back down. But in season one, we actually see something different. There's a scene uh, where Just Ice uh, intimidates RZA, um, uh, who's still calling himself Prince Rakim at the time, while he's on tour with them. And he demands to know what the day's mathematics are. Uh, did that really happen? Well, this is one of my favorite, you know, Easter eggs that I'm talking about, because the, you know, first of all, Just Ice is, you know, an interesting pull because that's somebody that might not resonate with, you know, uh, a novice hip hop fan. But Just Ice is the original hip hop gangster, as he called himself, like he was that dude and and very, very intimidating to New Jacks um, in there. And to answer your question, and, and one other thing I'll add, the, the, in the in the series, you know, he's wearing a custom leather, uh, yellow leather suit. And he's got the big, you know, Jamaican style hat that says Just Ice on it, which is an exact replica of one of my favorite hip hop portraits by Jeanette, Jeanette Beckman, um, who took of Just and they used it on, I think it's cool and deadly album cover. Um, but I hate to say it, but it didn't happen. So um, in 2020, uh, Just Ice appeared on Lord Jamar's podcast and Jamar, you know, who is you know, one of the gods. Um, is a great place for him to say that. And this is what Just said. He said, no, that never happened. I wasn't even on that tour. That was a Juice Crew tour. Um, and in the series, they portray him, they portray, you know, RZA, Jizza, and ODB. I believe they're on tour with Naughty by Nature. But Just Ice continues. Even when Fly Ty seen that ish, he was like, why is Justice, why is Justice there? Justice wasn't there. So, and, and as a aside, you know, Just Ice is a play on words on, you know, his, uh, you know, his, his given name of, of justice. And uh, so, no, that wasn't there, but, you know, hip hop heads that know their eighties history and early nineties history. It's a cool moment in the series all the same. Yeah, man. It's consistent. It makes sense. Cause even before uh, he was RZA and rolling deep with Wu, 
And we saw already, we talked about it, that he was not one to be intimidated. You know, um, four guys tried to take him on and we see what happened. So uh, he does not seem like the guy who's going to back down from one other person. So, yeah, that, that's consistent, that, that that would not be true. And that idea of knowledge itself is just a recurring um, huge point in the series, which, you know, you spoke about, you know, and I, I think it's true of me too, like Wu introduced a slang and some of that, you know, was from Staten Island. Some of that was from Kung Fu flicks, but some of that, you know, was from the five percenters. And it's really interesting. You know, there's a lot of scenes of, of different characters within the clan, you know, looking at the street life, looking at, what's going on and you know they really they really position the genius jizza at the center of that and of course in that scene with just ice you know genius saves the day um at least for that that interaction but mm-hmm. um i think one of the most interesting things to me when i watched um was the relationship at home with the Diggs family you know you see divine you see riz's mom you see his little brother randy um you know who i believe is ninth prince from kill army um, but one of the questions I want to ask that plays out is, did Ghostface Killer really have a child with Riz's sister? Yeah, man. So this is the one that really I had no idea about. You know, um, obviously, we know that the the members of Wu are close and they're family, right? And, and family in all senses of the word, because family doesn't always get along. Family bends, but never breaks. And, and these guys have had like tremendous ups and downs over the years, Um you know, often over money, which causes most disputes, even in families too, you know, so, um, you know, it was surprising to me to see a depiction of ghosts actually with Riz's sister. And it's a really prominent storyline throughout, you know, it's, it's a, it's a, it's a theme that like recurs throughout. And so, you know, there's a couple of, um, so the answer to that question is yes, but again, um, it's different in real life than is depicted on the show. So on the show, um, Rizzo only has one sister. Uh, but in reality, he has 11 brothers and sisters, um, uh, three sisters. Um, but he chose only to do it as a composite character because he, wanted, he thought it was going to be too difficult for people to track. And I'm sure he probably didn't also want to you know, tie anything specific to one person. So, you know, keep him out of the limelight. Um, you know, in reality, um, you know, the, the the woman um who is with ghost and um sometimes i see her referred to as his wife so i'm not sure if they're married or not but her name is sophia diggs um it's riz's sister um and they are reported to have three children together um and um you know in 2013 during an interview with xxl uh, ghost said of Rizza. Rizza is my brother for life. That's my brother-in-law, you know? So again, like, um, suggest that, that, that the two are married and he says, I got babies by his effing sister. So goes, uh, I, I don't think it gets any more clear than that, you know? Um, but it also might speak to what you said earlier as to why Rizza and ghost seem to have that, uh, extra close relationship, at least music wise, uh, is probably reflective of how they are in life. But what, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, back in 20, 2006, I want to say right around the the um, the uh, Fish album, um, I spoke to Ghostface Killer. It might have even been the More Fish campaign, um, not Fish Scale, one of the two. And, and I asked him that question. I was like, yo, what's the bond? And he said something very similar to me about that. 
And the other point I wanted to make is one of those children that they have together is Sun God, um, who, you know, a lot of the Wu-Tang MCs have children that have also taken up the, the passion for hip hop. And, you know, Sun God is, is one of the more talented and he's been a, fi a fixture on ghost albums for years and they've rapped together. So, yeah, just a lot of history right there. Yeah, man. Well, I can't wait to see what season three brings. Um, you know, I, I, I'm also curious as to how far, how deep into the story they go, because, you know, as, as I just said, they've got so much history. And if you think about it, they could splinter off into the solo careers. They could talk about the different albums. Um, you know, there's so much material for all of them that I can't see that all being addressed in one season. So, you know, my thought is that uh, this probably goes through, you know, first album um, and maybe tour or something like that. But but what's your, what's your thought? Yeah, I could I could see that. I, I think from a casting standpoint, it's not like they're going to jump ahead, you know, 10 years or anything like that. And and I think it's going to be those formative, formative individual identities. Um, and that's what feels, you know, right and true with the show. And I'm 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 quite sure just like this, there will be things that even as fans that we didn't know that the show will remind us. And, you know, Lord willing, we'll be right back here separating facts from fiction on those. Yeah, man. Well, I got to say, uh, even though there are definitely moments that are embellished, embellished or just fictional, um, as is clear from us doing this, this research, the show is very, very reflective of the the tone and spirit of what they went through. And I think in terms of um, biopics, it's one of the best out. And it was great to see that it, it's done over so many different chapters. You know, I think yeah. just given the complexities of who they are, uh, the number of people, you couldn't have covered it in a movie or, you know, even like a limited series. So kudos to them, man. Shout out to Riza. Shout out to Alex C. Um, shout out to Wu. I 100% agree. And I'm curious, too. I mean, you know, people that tune into our podcast, if there's things that you caught, um, fact or fiction that boggled you, I'd love to read that in the comments or on social media. Just please include Ambrosia for ads, because in preparing for this, you know, I was I really wanted to, um, you know, see things like Rizzo with the Sam Ash and the sampler. And it's funny, you go on Sam Ash's website and they advertise it on that. But I haven't seen Riza ever speaking about truly attempting to steal the sampler. But what they did said, and this speaks to, you know, the Easter egg type stuff, is that Easy Moby, you know, another very prominent producer that worked with Jizza on his first album and later came in to produce with Wu on, I think, Seven Diagrams or um, one of the joints, Eight Diagrams. Um, he taught Riza how to use the sampler. So when he comes in, there's this little moment of like, they even mentioned Easy Moby, which is another sort of like Just Ice. Like you didn't say premiere you didn't say dr dre you didn't say 45 king they're very very deliberate and i'm also curious and, and there's a huge thread on reddit about this the attila character you know this guy that comes and kind of bullies um various people around staten island and, and at one point steals riz's discs i'm quite sure that's embellished but i'd love to know if that's rooted in something so anyone out there that's listening to this watching this um, if there's things you know, things you caught that moved you, like, let's keep this discussion 360. Word. And uh, I believe the show comes back in the fall, but hopefully this has been enjoyable for folks. So definitely enjoyed d diving into it, man. Absolutely. Yo, well, we end all of our shows with a song of the week. And since this is a Wu-Tang series, what's your Wu-Tang song, man? Yeah, man. Um, my song is Can It Be So Simple. 
You know, I think it's reflective. It's, it's one of my favorite Wu songs, period. Um, it, it touches on a lot of what we talked about, you know, the soul sample and, um, you know, you know, Ray and Ghost. And um, but, you know, the reality is their storyline is not simple. The depiction of it is not so simple. Uh, and so I think that's that's reflect really reflective of the song, you know. So uh, how about you, man? I'm going to go with Seven Chamber Part Two, which I, you know, I, I consider End of the Woo Thirty Six Chambers one of you know the most classic albums, period, in any genre. At any given point, a different song on that album is my favorite. But one of the things I love in the series is them really showing RZA coming off with this off kilter sound you know, pitching samples till they sounded as rugged and raw as possible. And they even show that, you know, how they used cassette tapes to keep that grimy sound. And to me, when it came to production and rapping, that is so emblematic of that just grit and grime. And it's everything I love. And it all, it still sounds incredible to this day. Word. Well, yo, always a pleasure, man. Likewise, man. Until we do this again. Word. Peace. Peace.